Kia ora, I'm Graham. Welcome to episode one of The Good Oil, Conversations with Aotearoa Painters. In this episode, I visit Judy Miller in her Auckland West Coast home and studio. Judy has a long and impressive record spanning four decades that is built on constant experimentation. She has represented Aotearoa at the Venice Biennale, is held in numerous public and private collections across New Zealand, Australia and Europe, and shows regularly with gallerists including Robert Heald in Wellington, Sullivan and Strump in Sydney and Singapore, and Mark Mueller in Zurich. She is clearly someone that thinks deeply about her practice, as you'll hear as we talk about her early career, how she was always seeking to translate her experience of the world into her paintings, the importance of the west coast of Auckland to her and her work, her technical approach, her sometimes unorthodox and diverse range of tools, and how she is influenced by Raphael Nadal. We started by talking about her early experiences of art at school. Well, I grew in a family without, that, that wasn't um, at all connected with art. We went to the museum to see things, but I was never taken to an art gallery or we had no art on our walls. We had family photographs. Um, but I was always incredibly jealous of kids at school who could draw well. And there was a, you know, there's a strong um, memory in my life, and I'm not even sure how accurate it is, but I think it was Prima 4 we got taken to the bus depot, as, you know, it was a kind of very normal trip in those days, and we came back and were asked to draw what we'd seen. And everyone in the class drew the buses from the side, which was the shape of, you know, a sausage, I suppose. And one boy in the class, Jamie Ross, drew the bus, or all the buses, from the back, which in those days, buses were shaped a little bit like the end of a loaf of bread, <laughs> like an arc with, you know. Um, and I realised that Jamie had seen something none of the rest of us had seen. And I, uh, I was, A, incredibly jealous, but B also realised that that was probably what art was, hmm. was seeing that thing that no one else saw. And from that moment on, um, I, you know, had a commitment to trying to do that. So, so from that moment on, you're talking six, seven years old? Well, from four, I'm not quite sure what Prima. that even was, but, you know. Seven or eight maybe. Maybe, yes, yeah. yes, more like that. Yeah. And I got incredibly lucky at intermediate school that I was taught by Stanley Palmer. Oh, good heavens. I right. actually had some very good good luck with teachers. So Stanley Palmer um, taught me in intermediate school art. We had a, one art session a week, I think. And I drew a cat from above so that it became like a ball with a tail. <laughs> and he pulled that drawing out and pinned it on the wall. And I remember my incredible pride. Um, at being selected. More by Stanley Palmer. No by less. Stanley Palmer. And from that moment on, I was pretty hooked. Huh. Um, and then I got very lucky at, at high school. Um, I was taught by Sue McBride, an amazing art teacher. Hmm. And my curriculum didn't work with having... These were the days when, you know, the less bright children got taught art and the rest didn't. So it didn't really fit with my syllabus. Um commitments to other subjects. My mother insisted that I take Latin for some unknown reason. Yeah, you don't strike me as the less bright cohort of the students. Um, But she, so she enabled me to come to the art class at lunchtime and do my prelim exam, which I couldn't have done otherwise. Well, also my parents had said, no way you're going to the seventh form. It wasn't seen in those days. None of my sisters had gone to university. There was no reason for any girl to go to university as far as my family were concerned. And um, I had heard about art school and really wanted to go. In those days, you had to take a special exam to, to get into art school. So she enabled me to do that exam during lunchtime. I mean, amazing, you know, amazing commitment. And so, you know, I, a lot of luck, um, really. And then when I was able to get into art school, which was quite difficult in that time I was you know I guess my path was pretty set from then on that's, that's, that's high, high school, school. <laughs> right yeah wow Jamie Ross and Stanley Palmer yeah it's not the Jamie Ross by the way it was a guy called you know he became a doctor I think Jamie Ross 
but I always I, I uh, do thank him for his does, first. Does he have any um, uh, sense, you know, before hearing this podcast, maybe that um, he's no, he's I'm, the one I'm, that's responsible for I'm the I'm sure he has no idea. No, no. no. <laughs> so that that special exam then is uh, you know what you had to take to get into Elam, like mm-hmm. you were targeting trying to get into Elam at University of Auckland. Yeah, I, um, I heard I had no idea art schools existed until. You know, I was in the sixth form, and and then when I heard you could actually do that, I was fairly sure that that's where I was going, um, even though my family had rather different ideas about it. But I, you know, I got there, and um, so was there a bit of tension in in, in getting to art school with the family? Sounds oh, like oh, definitely. It. My mm. parents actually said, you know, if you if you go, you're on your own, and oh. I was like, okay, wow. <laughs> I'm on my own. Um, you know. I don't know why they thought that. Uh, Bridget Riley always says that her her mother was scared of the loneliness and her father was scared of the poverty. (laughs) Um, Mm. There are good reasons, you know. Yeah, I mean, it is a a tough road to hoe in many ways, especially when you're starting out. And and certainly in in those days it was. There was... Mm. It is a different time. There was, what, there were two two commercial galleries, maybe three commercial galleries in Auckland. Mm. It was very, very difficult to even... Well, it was not even a thought, actually, that you might live off your work. We all planned it out. It's called Ways to Survive and um, kind of helped one another, shared studios and supported one another in in our various odd jobs that um, enabled us to keep making work we'd often arrive in our studios at 11 o'clock at night after working and and make work together you know it was a different time really is there a well I have a sense there's a flip side to that where look roughly speaking I'm no art historian but during the mid 80s when you went to Elam Mm -hmm. there's a good sort of 50 years of New Zealand contemporary art history you know, if we think about the group and, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, like, you know, Toss Wallace mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, you know, any of those mm-hmm. characters, Doris Lusk, etc. Did you have a sense of, OK, we're 50 years into, you know, of contemporary New Zealand art history. There's something for me to be able to build on. Uh, yes and no. I mean, my, my generation, I think, was the generation that wanted to experience the bigger world. So we were very focused on what was going on in New York. Mm. Um, our dream was to get there and work there. Um, you know, I think hugely mistaken now, and, and I, I think, well, it was what it was. Um, Mistaken. New Zealand was in the Vietnam War with the United States. These things don't happen by chance. Mm. It, it is a political agenda that you suddenly think that, that culture become, comes from a particular place. And it was largely white, it was largely male. Well, not largely. It was white, it was male. Um, you know, all of those things, of course, uh, have turned around completely. But that's where we were at. And, of course, we held McCann and, and um, mainly McCann up, in, in enormously high regard, and we were reading New Zealand authors, and but in many ways we were waiting for Art Forum to drop, and we would wait outside the Elam Library for the air freighted edition of Art Forum to come in, and so we were living in this sort of weird separated world, I think. I mean, not that's not uncommon, I suppose, in the New Zealand arts, or maybe even beyond the arts, that we that we inevitably look beyond New Zealand shores for direction to some degree. So there was a sense of that happening. There were, well, there was, and I, you know, having said that, um, the most important lecturer at Elam for me was Alberto Garcia Alvarez, who was, of course, Spanish, mm. and he was always say, "Go to go to the Auckland Museum. The best work you'll find in this country is in the museum." He was referring to the Pacific Halls and um, learn from there. Uh, not He didn't never steal from there, learn from there, different thing. And so there were, there were other voices um, that we could have taken more note of that possibly would have been much better voices to listen to. 
Yeah, right. Um, so literally closer to home, being the Pacific rather than New York or we Europe. Are, uh, that's right. And the gener- interestingly, the generation before us had been trying to base themselves entirely here. So that this sort of, you know, things ebb and flow. Hmm. You, you've been represented by Gal Langsford since 1987, and I, and I think that's that's around the, the same time or the, the year that they established the, the gallery, like in, in all the glamour of a disused petrol station in Grey Lynn, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so how did how did you end up being represented by them, especially so early on in you know that gallery that is now um, clearly approaching kind of a 35-year anniversary, approximately? Um, well, I had already been represented by a gallery in Auckland um, ah. that was run by Kerry Aberhart. It was called Aberhart North. It was in College Hill. And Kerry was doing a great job, actually. Um, it was a very small gallery. Uh, but from there I got asked to join Guy Langsford and, it, you know, it was an exciting prospect at the time. So uh, there weren't very many of us working out of art school. There were never very many who show a kind of persistent faith once they leave art school and there were Mm -hmm. a relatively small group of us. We had um, been members of a um, possibly the first artist collective running in quite that way that wasn't um, I mean there had obviously been um, artist groups who showed together but we uh, had uh, um, been part of a a group that was part of 100 square metres in federal in Gosh, what was the street? Wyndham Street, Some, somewhere. I think Wyndham Street. And so, you know, we were starting to get a bit of a profile. We, you know, we were seen. Um, and a market beginning to to clearly establish itself for. Yeah, by the well. late eighties, certainly, um, um, things had changed a lot. So things had changed a lot everywhere. Hmm. Um, this was pre-crash, pre-stock market crash, Auckland. So there was a kind of bubbling of, um, of energy, market energy. So, so that's it. Maybe this coincides, you know, with stock market crash and changes. In 1990, um, or around that time, you became a little disillusioned with, with painting or and or art, and and travelled to Italy. Um, so, how did you find your way back to painting? I'm assuming that that trip helped a great deal. Yeah, I became disillusioned with the whole market force to a certain extent at that point as well. Um, even before the market crash, um, the market crash made life much more difficult. Mm. But I had become um, a little bit disillusioned with what it meant to be an artist. Um, and, you know, I, I had opened a cafe with the idea that I would... We were all... You know, okay, we were starting to sell work, but we had very little money, and most of us were working in various cafes or various jobs, service industry jobs at the time, who were my artist friends. So I said, well, let's get together. We open our own. Um, that didn't really work out, but I, I opened the first cafe I opened was Domino's in Lawn Street, which became a kind of little cultural enclave, um, and that was quite successful. So I made enough money to. To buy the land out on the west coast, where I still am. Well, where and, we are, where we are now. Where I we say. are now, yeah. and that gave me a certain freedom. So I, I dreamed of. I was off the grid. I was growing vegetables. I thought I, it was, um, I was a utopian. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was my future, to be um, an artist who was providing all basic needs from the land. That proved to be much more difficult than I Mm. had initially assumed. Uh, So I got, anyway, long story short, I got a chance to win a scholarship to go to Italy and study, and I wanted to get out of the country desperately at that point. So I went, and um, uh, uh, while I was studying art from the 1970s at the university I was going to in Italy, every weekend I would go to some part of Italy and delve into the history of Italian painting, actually, and just believed, had to believe that there would be some way to make this, uh, to bring this into a contemporary life. And painting had a pretty, you know, paintings had a difficult time in the 20th century. It's flourished and then it's 
people have wanted to kill it and it's flourished again and it sort of goes on and so that became I came back here to try and find a way back into painting and, and clearly you did yeah I've had a lot of different goes at it but um, I found my way do, do you recall you know how or was it a you know a slow a slow move back into no, no specifics uh, it's a lot of hard work I tried everything I you know tried various approaches I think if you work at something hard enough in the end some one day it becomes a one day thing something clicks and I did something which I realized finally something from my inside you know something of mine is meeting the world in a way that could be developed which was that moment that made you feel like ah I'm back I'm, I'm back in it it's worth it's worth pursuing yeah there's something here there's something here that I can um, mine and and develop and from there on you know it's it's been an unfolding from there on hmm well, into I, I, another key moment, I suppose, um, representing New Zealand at the 2009 Venus Biennale. Mm-hmm. A, a significant step forward in career for you that moment? Yeah, I'm not very fond of the word career. Um, ah. I, I'm still a, a kind of believer that artists don't have careers. Um, but certainly uh, a big moment in terms of having to re-understand yourself mm. and re-understand the prospects. I mean, it was the first time I had really been given a decent budget, a reasonable budget, small by, by many standards, but an okay budget and resources that would help me to realise something bigger than I had been able to before. Um, so that changes the way you think about yourself. And therefore and, the practice. And therefore your practice, yes. Begs the question, you know, what, what changes then in, I suppose, you and, and therefore the, you know, the work did, the, you know, representing New Zealand in that Biennale have? Well, it's multifaceted. On one hand, you have to fight your own hubris at that point. Mm. Um, you understand uh, a different kind of ambition for the work. Um you have a much bigger audience, many doors open for you, you have the chance to show in other places. Um, I had been showing relatively regularly in a Swiss with a Swiss gallery, who I still show with and has been very supportive. So my reputation in Switzerland was enhanced a lot. Um, you know, it's quite a meaningful thing in the wider international art world when you can say you've been in Venice, then people give you at least a little bit of time. <laughs> so, yeah, it, um, many things change. You get a lot of opportunities. Well, to start to start talking about maybe um, you know some philosophy and principle. I'm afraid the catch here for you is being, you know, some. I'm going to be careful to try and not use the word career again <laughs> in this. It's um, a vocation. Yeah, a vocation. Yeah, yeah. it's a vocation. Well to, well, to be you know so far along and established in vocation means that there is a wealth of quotes for me to draw on um, to you know to read back to you of yours which I'm really curious about so so I wanted to I guess speak to, to some of those or ask you about some of those um, so so one of them is uh, painting is, is a way of collapsing uh, the separation of the mental and the bodily that I experience in so many ways in other parts of, of life so I was curious to know you know what those other parts of life are and, and how easy or difficult it is to then translate that into, into work. Right. Well, I think that is the fundamental problem of being human, is that we live in this um, dual world, the world of our imagination, our dreams, fantasy, ambitions. And then we meet the physical world, which can be very difficult and, and doesn't uh, always go the way our our mental world would like. When you're trying and to develop a utopia around the West Coast and grow your own vegetables. I've certainly found that, yes. <laughs> Right. Um, and I think in all, in all parts of life we meet that. Mm. And for me, art is the, um, I think religion used to be the way that we attempted to draw these two worlds together in its most pure form. But I, I think that art is certainly a way 
that can enable us to find a way to at least confront that paradox um, with, and, and find some kind of resolution. So for me, it is a way to resolve this, this tension that we exist in between our, our, our inner world, if you like, and our outer world. There are so many ways to express this. Um, but I think the, the inner world and the outer world, we all understand. Our mental world and our the physical, hard physical world we um, encounter is another way. Um, and art is, is for me a, a central, a, a central um, something given to us that can help us uh, res- at least live with that, not resolve it, but at least live with the differences. Explore. Explore, confront. Yeah. How cognizant are you of wanting to translate that to the viewer when you're working, or, or do you do you not care and you're like, this is an expression of of that experience for me, and it is what it is. Well, I think painting is is um, has this very special quality that it is both an illusion and a physical object at the same time, and so that's why I paint because it is that, it is both physical matter and an illusionistic image. So already it contains it. So for me, as much as uh, when I'm making it, it's as much an exploration of these two worlds as it is the result, then transmitting that to somebody else. So for me, it's um, the very act of making them enables me to lift those two worlds together. So so is that a case then of, because you know, illusion and imagination, you know, I've, I've, I've you know, seen you use those words in association with your practice a lot, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, is it both capture of that experience, mm-hmm. but creation of it as well? Uh, yeah, they go together. So if I always think it's a transmission from my actions to the viewer. Hopefully it transmits. Um, so the actions must be Convincing. They must be. They must have been done in a, in a with a spirit of really trying to find out or bring these two worlds together, and then that will be transmitted to the viewer in a way that is undeniable. It doesn't. It's it, it's not an intellectual exercise, although it involves the intellect. Right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Something in between. Uh, well, everything. It's physical. It's uh, yeah. Right, so, so I, and again, I promise I'm not going to throw too many of your own quotes at you, but, but, <laughs> but one more. Uh, I am a painter, except when I am painting, then I am no one, nowhere, nothing. I, I take that to mean that there's a sense of you either, you know, losing your own ego when you paint, yes. but also expressing your own id, maybe. Well, yes, that would certainly be one way to put it. But um, when I'm really painting, and it's not always that it, that you find a way into the work in such a in such a good way, but when you're really there, I, I you cease to exist. I the time and space seem to collapse into themselves, and often when I leave the studio, I have no idea of how much time has passed. Um, I can't really remember the experience. It's really like I step into another world. It's lucky you end up with a record of it. And I end up with a record of it. Yes. I think sports people experience this as well, from what I understand. You know, I'm not a sports person, but I, I know that, um, interesting, Nadal talks about tennis in this way, you know, that when he's really playing, he's almost non-existent. And I find that fascinating. It's funny, I hadn't, uh, hadn't thought about you perhaps considering, you know, sport and Rafael Nadal in parallel with your practice. Uh, I'm fascinated by tennis and... <laughs> And there mm. are there are some really good painters who have been and writers who have been considering you know professional tennis careers, which I find really interesting. Um, Foster Wallace, the author Foster Wallace, is a clear example. I don't know if you're aware of him. Infinite Jest, right? Yeah, yeah. He he was a young professional tennis player and fascinated by tennis. It's funny to think that tennis is a conduit for so much. I think it's the possibly the aloneness out there and the, the having to meet your own limits, 
I'm also really curious about, obviously, you know, approach to work, but and and so we'll, maybe we'll come back to this when we talk about um, you know process inevitably, but but I wonder if this is a key part of principle as well, and that uh, you know removal of material seems as much part of your practice as the as the application from it, but and and you know usually when you end up um, you know hearing painters talk about removing. Uh, you know, material from a, from a canvas or from a platform. They're like, oh, I buggered that up. You know, I can I can take some terps to it. I can remove it. Um, but for, but for you, it seems like a really important you know part of the outcome of the work. Yes. Um, there are many ways to answer this question. Um, when I first started painting, it's a it's a European male tradition essentially. And I really felt like I, to find a way in there, I had to dismantle it for myself. So I started to take it apart. And so I started to um, even copy other artists' work and then wipe it away. Um, I really felt like I had to somehow dismantle it in order to find my own way into it. And just out of that, that's, that's how it came about. I think I just promised there wouldn't be any more quotes from you, but one more. Every attempted annihilation makes it makes it richer. <laughs> yes. Which is a great quote. It's uh, fascinating insight to what your work is. Yes, I, then I discovered if I, if I uh, destroyed it more, it became more of a substance, which is another paradox. So I built it up out of a series. I began to build the work up out of a series of um, dismantlings. Ironically, you know, adding to the work every single time in your experience. Of course, yeah. A regular part of, of practice has been, you know, installations mm-hmm. um, and and maybe even, you know, maybe even fair to call them sculptures. Mm-hmm. So I guess for a start, I just want to sense check, you know, are, that, are those two appropriate words to apply to what some of the practice is? Well, I never really thought of them as sculptures because they were always quite planar. You know, I think of sculptures as fully rounded, fully dimensional forms and the works I made were always planes, intersecting planes, but they were always um, planar. And really it was just um, an extension of what was going on on the canvas and a different way to understand it, to to um, to experience it. I'm working less like that at the moment. Um, I think I learned a lot from starting to break the two-dimensional canvas into multi-different dimensions. Um, And was that for your purely for your exploration, or were you also wanting to you know break down that that in a theatre sense that fourth wall for the viewer? Both of those things, yeah. The theatrical aspect of the work is really is really important and has been really important. I like to well, I'm hoping that I get that same theatrical quality now into the the single canvas, but it was a way to develop certainly a way to develop that. And related to that, I, I, uh, I think has been, you know, how you've been embraced at times, especially with those those larger, you know, works occupying entire rooms, um, you know, is, is technology. So, so what has technology allowed you to explore that you might not be able to with just, you know, just materials and and you know brushes? Once upon a time, painters would look at their work in mirrors, to to see them differently. And I start, I mean, once cameras came along, that became the mirror. So. Th- one thing painters tend to do is take photographs of their work and, and then look at it in the photographic form because it's a, a different kind of visualising of it. So once I had begun to take, to do this, it seemed, you know, we live in a world of um, computer screens and the ability to move things around. So I would just start to take photos and drop them in to um, Photoshop and then mess around with stuff and then thought that I could then play that back out so it was a way of distancing myself from the work in some sense to see it more clearly um in a problem solving way just in in a curiosity way really and just seeing how it might look it's quite magical you paint a painting red and you can see it in green you know that's uh it's it's fascinating and and then i realized i could start to print them out from there so messing around with that um I'm much more interested in pure paint right now, but it was a, it was a good thing to do, yeah. and I still do photograph the work and and look at the work on screen. 
Yeah, that's um, this might be a good time to actually talk about putting work in different contexts to understand it differently. We were talking, you know, earlier uh, about you moving work from you know where we are now, your like west west coast Auckland studio, into a studio space that you have in Henderson, and how that changes the the context of how you view the mm-hmm. view the work. Mm-hmm. So, what what does that contribute to uh, you know process or outcome for you being able to see the work differently? Well, because I work so cl- physically closely to the work. Um, I use my body, I use my hands, I use anything I can find to to make the work. It's really good to get a little bit of separation. So the first step of separation is to take it to my Henderson um, studio, which is in an industrial zone. So already the atmosphere and the sounds are different. Um, And there I already take a step back from the work. I'm able to look at it from a greater distance and see it in a different way. Sometimes I'm unhappy with that and will change the work. Sometimes I'm very happy with that and and the work stays. So that each time you shift it or move it, I think you see it in a different way. And that was one of the big interests in me in, in showing in Europe initially is that when the work when I saw the work in Europe, just the context is so different that I saw the work completely anew. Uh, sometimes in a rather shocking sense and sometimes in a really good way. Yeah, well, that's, that's something else we were talking about or touched on briefly, you know, earlier out, outside of this conversation um, was your experience of, you know, going from New Zealand and then first showing in, in Europe and how, you know, Europeans were, in, were engaging in the work and you and how you were speaking about it. So it sounded like that was quite a shift for you as, as well. It, it was, but the conversations were so entirely different. Europeans have this... The Europeans who visit galleries, obviously they're seeing the works of enormous quality from history on a regular basis. They have an enormous understanding of the history of painting. Um, and they saw my work very differently. Uh, the first curator said, um, you, you sort of get the history of painting in one work. How do you do that? And I said, well, if you've grown up looking at the history of art in books, it, it's sort of natural to do that because, you're, you, because you don't actually have to negotiate the paintings themselves. They just become images that you can play with, mess with and muddle up. I also... So, so being... That's interesting. Like being once removed from that history of European painting mm-hmm. makes it... You're almost making it sound like it was easier to to approach your own work than than perhaps being in the presence of that. I that. think in many ways you don't have the load on you, uh, and you're unaware of the size and and glory of many of these paintings. You know everything's reduced down to a <laughs> nice little image on a page. It's fine. Um, I think had I been around these things, I would have been. You're you're slightly in. You're not slightly. You're in awe. I suppose, if you grow up around these works. And either you're going to then want to challenge them or ignore them. I didn't have either. I didn't have to do either of those things. That also begs a question around, um, you know, your practice being a New Zealand and a European one. Again, we were speaking earlier, you were saying you're, you know, spending less time, you know, in Berlin and in Europe than um, you have perhaps, you know, historically. That balance of being... I don't know, are you a New Zealand artist or are you something, you know, in between a European and New Zealand artist? What what is what does, you know, those two places contribute to the practice? This became a real issue for me, I think, when I had I had a survey show in, in Switzerland in 2019. Uh, the first time I'd had a survey show anywhere. And I realised that the audiences that, that came to the show, they sort of understood 80% of the work because they got all the art historical context. Um, but the 20% they were missing seemed very crucial. And I think in, in maybe here, people get the 20%. Crucial to you or cru- crucial to crucial their experience? To the, crucial to the work and crucial to me. And that is about the land and about the things that I look at. And I, you know, if a work is going to be a a revelation of your experience, and I think in essence that's what a work has to be, it has to really reveal your experience, then there was something enormously missing. 
uh, from from showing in Europe, and and I became much less interested in doing it. So, uh, and then COVID came along, and and I think we all became localized in a very good way. So, do you you feel like you're now conducting a far more New Zealand practice than, than anything else. I may just be conducting a West Coast practice. <laughs> hyper localized. Hope hyper localized. I think hyper localized. I think is possibly where we're all heading. Mm. Mm. We still have to communicate because obviously the big problems facing us are world problems, but we possibly need to do it from a hyper localized focus. Mm. I I was lucky enough to be in, in someone's home recently where a relatively new work of yours, I think it's a year or two old, is hung in pretty close proximity to one of Gretchen Albrecht's um, you know, 1970s West Coast paintings. Mm-hmm. And, and looking at the two of them together, I was struck by, by how familiar, you know, how, or how similar they, they seem, mm-hmm. especially the almost background of the work I have in mind. So are they West Coast paintings, like those Gretchen Albrecht Paintings are, I think they're really West Coast paintings. Yes. No, it, interestingly, the uh, the gallerist that I've worked with in Switzerland for a long time now came to came uh, to Aotearoa in Christmas. I don't know, two thousand twelve, I think it was. And he'd always been saying to me, "Look, it's really hard for me to work with you. You need to come and live in Europe." And when he came out to the West Coast, he said, you must stay there. <laughs> and he said he was shocked by the energy coming out of the land. And suddenly he understood the work in completely new ways. And, I, you know, that was, um, that was a good thing to hear. Yeah. He finally got it. He finally got it, yes. Yeah. I suppose I look at the work, you know, in this conversation. Now it's like, okay, right, they are landscape. Are they landscape yeah. paintings? Um, yes, they certainly embrace landscape, yes. But your experience of that landscape as opposed to obviously something more representational? Yes, uh, yes. I, um, I think any representation freezes things, and a painting mustn't freeze anything. A, fr- a painting's job is to open it up, not to freeze it. So that- let's talk, talk about Turner. You know, you know t- Turner's work completely opened up his world, his landscape world, uh, in, a, in a new free way. And it was representational, but it was so much more than that. He's someone that you're a little influenced by. Well, I often think of him strapping himself to the mast of a ship, as he did, <laughs> and I don't need to, because <laughs> I live in a place that's like often like being tied to a mast of a ship. So his desire to experience those natural forces um, was so strong. And I, I, I do experience them living where I do. Looking at your work, though, it, it feels like it's, it's really in, intuitive, clearly, and it, especially in its you know, application and, and execution on, on canvas. Um, but, you know, is it, I suppose, is it purely intuitive? Mm, it's a tricky word, intuition, because I don't think any of us really know what we mean by it. Um, it's intuitive as much as... It is an internal world meeting an external world. Um, I quite like the, the you know, if you if we break down that word intuition, it is actually like an inner teaching, right? So it it's not we're not talking about spontaneity. We're talking about an inner teaching, and of course, it is an inner teaching because you do it over and over and over and over again. Mm. So the repetition of it um, drives it. In that case, then how much? preparation is there or how cognizant are you of the outcome that you want going Mm. into a work i try not to be because i don't i'm not looking for a product for an experience i'm after an experience the experience will be recorded but if i desire to have a product and you know i often fall into that silly trap then things go very bad How, how do you fall into that trap oh sometimes you need a painting sometimes you want a painting um, instead of just going and painting. Hmm. Again, we could talk about tennis players. You know, you <laughs> often hear tennis players saying, um, I just must hit the ball or I must take each point as it comes. As soon as they think about winning the game, it's not usually very good. Yeah. It's the same thing. Does some of that then make you purely an, an action painter? Um, 
Yes, it's because that has come to label a, partic a particular set of work. It is certainly painting that involves action. <laughs> um, but I'm not just trying to record action. I feel like you're putting that question in its rightful place. Yeah, no, I'm, <laughs> I, you know, I use it. I, of course, I use a very active body. Yeah. And I use a lot of muscle. Um, but I also use sight. And so I'm, I'm, I am looking for something. And there's a very uh, famous Japanese painter from the 1950s and 60s who painted with his feet. Now, of course, he couldn't see what he was doing because there's no way you can see what your feet are producing. So that's a different thing entirely. He's disconnected from vision, but I'm not. I, I am wanting to see, to see something. And I'm looking for something that resembles something. Now, I can't tell you what that resemblance is, but it's a resemblance of something I know. Well, in, in terms of process, you, you changed a little bit, I think, in early 2000s, where you started laying mm -hmm. canvases on the floor to, to paint. Mm -hmm. So that, that physical, that, that must have changed physically how you approached work and, and therefore how you executed as well. Uh, yeah, partly that was because I was using much more fluid paint. So if you have it on the wall, it all falls off. Um, but the fluid paint does allow um, a, a different kind of working and um you know th these things change all the time i um i mean but looking in the studio before yes this works on the floor there yes. are works on the wall so you're still painting uh, mostly on the floor because the work tends to be very fluid when i the, the paint i use is very fluid mm. uh and i like it fluid just because that you know the word says it all fluidity allows um a lot of exploration well you've you've described Jackson Pollock as being a weaver of space, which mm -hmm. I think is a really great insight about, about his work. Mm -hmm. But surely you're, you're doing the same. I mean, it certainly oh, absolutely. looks like yeah, yeah, so no, there's an aspiration there to... Yeah, no, weaving, I think a lot about weaving. and Physical uh, weaving? Physical weaving. Um, I, I, I'm fascinated by weavings and weavers and... I think in many ways all painting is a kind of weaving. Interestingly, we work on canvas, which is a woven substance. Well, certainly I work on canvas, which is already a woven substance. Mm. But the um, the way you know things go over and under, things are hidden and exposed. Because it feels like with more recent work, and I suppose I, I'm talking about five, six, seven, eight years, mm -hmm. it feels like you're leaving more of that background space compared to that more... Uh, say so the you know kind of darker sweeps or that more the, the more animated mm -hmm. elements that are the ones that immediately appear mm -hmm. when you look at your work. Mm -hmm. Are you trying to leave more space? I've been trying to leave more space for a long time <laughs> and trying to find ways to do it. I'm yeah, the more space the better. I have to stop myself closing it up. Which you used to. There didn't used to be much space in inverted commas. Well, the um, space was was very closed, mm. very interwoven, if you like, you know. But I had been trying to find ways to open it up. It, it's yeah, that has been my major, one of my major issues. And still, one you're exploring. It, it will always be, I think. Um, just how much do I leave it open? How much do I close it up? And where is that? You know, where that should sit. To create the right tension. Well, yes, tension, um, dynamic. Um, you know, a painting has to be, has enough entertainment, um, enough mystery, um, enough energy, all of those things. Hmm. Trying to, so constantly trying to find that right yeah. balance, is balance? Balance, the... yes. Sometimes balance can be tipped, but balance, yes. A skewed balance, you know, but balance nonetheless. Tipped in a, in a, in which way? Well, you, uh, um, you know, we're more aware of balance when it's not balanced balance, right? <laughs> yes. we're, we're, when do we become aware of our own balance when we're about to fall? It's mm. that, it's that kind of balance that is just on the cusp. I'm always curious to know how 
painters manage you know problems or, or challenges and works and, and it, you know it sounds like achieving that balance piece you know is, is one for you mm-hmm. but whether it's even you know kind of technical problems or composition problems how, how do you approach those or manage them the technical problems sometimes drive the work and sometimes they hinder the work so you always you know I'm always trying to find new ways to work so that new problems get produced which enables me to find new ways to solve them it's kind of a mad game really of constantly trying to solve of trying to s- solve and open solve and open so the questions have to remain open ended so there's always an attempt to solve them but that you Nothing is ever, you know, it's not going to be solved. It's like a driving mechanism. Does that drive you crazy in, in the process? Sometimes. Like you, you, we talked earlier about, um, you know, attrition rate and how much work, mm-hmm. you know, you look at and go, this is not working, it needs to be destroyed. Mm-hmm. When can you, you know, how, how frequently can you not solve problems? Well, it's losing contact with the work because things step in the way and that's really painful because you maybe go too far or you don't go far enough or you get in the way of things and so sometimes you destroy your work you shouldn't have and sometimes you don't destroy work you should have (laughs) (laughs) but the great work you know when you make it and and you know get in the way of things get in the way of yourself get in the way of yourself yeah insert yourself in there Instead of getting out of it, instead of letting things just happen. And, and in that context, because I know you prefer to remove yourself from work in a way. Mm-hmm. So is putting yourself in work sometimes, you know, an accident? It's not something that you want to happen. Uh, it, it's, um, it's an accident. I don't know. It's willful. And it's, um, it's trying to put will, just push will aside. Is, is really the thing but we, we are willful creatures we want to control stuff and are you trying not to yes uh, yes that sounds like I'm not, not wanting to take responsibility but it's it's <laughs> not that and so that it's a it's an awfully fine balancing game between in a, a, letting things happen and delineating what can happen does that make any sense? I think so, especially in the context of balance. Yes, yes. Because you're such a technical painter. There's uh, lots of technical elements that I wanted to to um, to talk about. So, so if we start from uh, the ground up, maybe uh-huh. there, um, is it still a case that you're applying, you know, quite a lot of gesso to, to canvases to work with a really smooth surface? Well, I know I'm able to purchase a canvas that's much better prepared. Um, so yes, I do still partly prepare them, but I'm no longer spending days sanding canvases because I do buy a very um, beautifully smooth pre-prepared canvas. Right, which is well, clearly preference. Well, it saves time. Yeah, yeah. But then you've also added layers of wax in the past to be able to interact with turps, right? So uh, Yeah, I use a lot of different mediums. I use wax, which makes things all very kind of slippery. Um, I, I'm painting with acrylic paint and the underpaintings but I use oil paint on the top which um, brings a whole it's very rich in colour and rich in surface but it brings a lot of technical issues with it because it has a tendency to crack and dry oddly and uh, it's not quite as user friendly as acrylic paint is I'm trying to think of um, oil, acrylic, yes but I feel like there's a ton of other materials that we're missing spray paint spray paint, mediums um, different oils, a lot of turpentine. And, and you're just wanting to be able to play with those or leverage um, how each of the materials work or have them interplay? Sometimes things happen which are um, could be called accidents and that they open some new vein up in the work and that might be um, to do with a material that you've picked up accidentally or... You've just used out of desperation sometimes, um, and that opens up a complete new seam. And sometimes I'm really searching for something. I was a, some a few years ago. I was was really trying to think of what could make a, a could make um, a movement like a very big fingertip 
you know, I was thinking about um, enlarging, making the the movements more extreme. And um, I thought about this for so long, and I thought, I know I need a I need to get a, a leather hide, and fill it with something, and so it would be like a big, literally, I'd make myself essentially a, a big fingertip. And I was driving to the um, tanners to get pick up a, um, a big piece of leather, and I just stopped the car and went, oh, you're so crazy. A, plas- a plastic bag will do this really brilliantly. So I got a plastic bag and filled it with sand and started to use paint paintings with this plastic bag full of sand, and that was kind of brilliant. So, so you were, like, dragging it dragging over the, the paint, Yeah, dragging the paint with this big plastic bag full of sand. It could be cleaned really easily, and it just sort of opened up a whole new um, possibility, series of possibilities in the work. So things, you know, odd things happen. You get mad ideas and kind of pursue them. Well, that's, that's um, again, something else I wanted to touch on was the, the tools that you use to, to apply mm-hmm. paint. Because brushes, um, apparently, are, you know, already in this conversation, clearly not enough for you. And, I, and I've seen, um, you know, photographs of um, these, these almost kind of Frankenstein's monsters creations um, that you come up with and, and something that comes to mind specifically is this three brush brush that uh-huh. um, uh, uh-huh. as I say I've seen a photograph of uh-huh. you put together mm-hmm. so presumably that's born out of just wanting to experiment in the way you're applying paint or is it experimentation with tools or both well that specifically came about because I was wanting exaggeration so I think exaggeration is a wonderful theatrical um notion and I I was working very much with you know contracting things and, and expanding things and wanting a very exaggerated um, to the point of absurdity so you know the brushes were never big enough so I just start to <laughs> put brushes together and make my own giant brushes difficult to work with yeah very heavy and um, easier than a bag full of sand though I uh, know a bag full of sand is quite good actually because <laughs> right. you know um, and you, washing brushes full of oil paint is really tedious. So to have to wash many brushes full of oil paint would take hours. So the bag of sand can be wiped down. So um, sometimes these very uh, mundane things drive you to do different things. Yeah, you know, in that context, you know, what comes first: interest in experimentation with creating a new tool, or do you have in mind the outcome that you want to, to achieve? It can be either. So sometimes I'll see a tool and just think, oh, what would happen if I took that? You know, brush brush shops in Europe are really great. So often you find crazy brushes, and you just think, why has anyone designed that brush, and what does it do? Because yeah, I have this idea that when you say see a tool, it doesn't necessarily mean a brush. No, it doesn't mean a brush. It can be I can just see things, you know, and think, well, that could be you. What what happened? Often nothing, sometimes something. Um, Anything that'll scrape or um, pull or move or I'll have a go with. Yeah, well, that that brings me back to that that question around from a technical point of view. That question around you know removing paint. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, how much, especially in the effect that you want to create in removing paint, unlike someone wiping a canvas, you know, mm-hmm. clean with turps. Yeah, you know, how challenging is it getting that balance right? Well, I had to work with that, and I really wanted to mimic a brush stroke. And I found that if I used rags and wiped away the paint, there was kind of this mimicry, this odd mimicry of the brush stroke. You know, you could read that from a feminist perspective. It's like, you know, the brush is often seen as a, as a kind of male tool in, in discussion, and it was a sort of, in some way, a kind of undoing of that, and then a mimicry of that. And I could make it to any scale because I could have bigger and bigger wads of cloth so um, sometimes things really happen just luckily and you, you can use them. Experimentation. Experimentation, yeah. What haven't you figured out yet? And I know, you know, through the course of this conversation, you've said that, you know, it's a constant experiment, experimentation, but do you have a sense of what, what you don't know yet? The impossible question. Um, well, I hope there are things I don't know. And part of going to work every day is to find those out, because otherwise I wouldn't keep going. Hmm. Well, that's yeah, perfect situation. Next question: Like, what keeps you painting? You know, where where's that motivation after you know thirty five years into into vocation? 
sometimes I ask myself that. <laughs> um, it's where I still find the most intense moments of living is when I'm working. And may I ask what those most intense moments are? Well, the work, the, 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 the discovery of painting, the, the being in that, in that moment, um, the trials and tribulations, but also sometimes just the uh, extraordinary kind of moments that are really hard to describe. And where you find something new or you see something new or you understand something differently. You mean within your, like, within the within, context of practice? Within or just the life? context of practice, yeah. yeah. You've talked in the past about not being interested in paint as a material and, and more about wanting to create structures. And that seems like a, you know, really interesting contradiction. So I suppose in many ways, you know, why use paint as a, as a medium? I, it's strange that I've said that. I'm, I'm not sure the context of that statement, really. Uh, it was probably trying to, yeah, probably trying to sort of position myself out of just moving paint around because it's too often can be interpreted that way and that wouldn't make a lot of sense. Um, paint enables things to happen, so it enables me to find structures. It's the chosen medium. And it's an amazing medium. You know, it, it's coloured dirt, essentially. It comes out of the ground, really. It, it doesn't anymore, but once upon a time it was just coloured dirt. And... Uh, it's it's it seems to be endless in what it can produce. There seem to be no limits. Well, as we were talking about before, apparently painting isn't dead yet. Apparently not. No. <laughs> <laughs> mm. All right. Well, look, final final question that um, I'm asking everyone. We'll be asking everyone. Removing any limit, you know, of of budget or whether a work is held in a public institution, um, you know, what work would you love to live with, or what artist's work would you, you know, love to live with in, in general? Uh, this is such a hard question, and I think <laughs> every day I would give you a different answer. In many ways, none, because I'm so um, absorbed by work in the studio every day. There's nothing better than going home <laughs> to white walls. Um, I would find it quite difficult to live with the work of someone else's that I dearly, dearly loved. Although I, I do live with one work of an of a work that I very much like. Um, if I was pushed, you know, it, it would really change on a daily basis. So, okay. so I, I think I do want to push you a little bit on the work that you know you've said you do live with, you know, on a on a daily basis. So, so what is that work? I live with a work by Jim Dornan, who's a, a, a probably a little-known New Zealand artist who was, um, I suppose, in broad terms, an outsider artist. He spent quite a lot of his life in living in um, various mental institutions, but mm. he painted these paintings which he had um, stapled together in a book and would wander around showing people, turning the pages. It's painted on both sides. And all his work has a brain in it, and the brains are doing quite magical things. So this is the so this is the work that actually I, I can look at directly. Yes. It's sitting in front of me in the space that we're in, but behind you, I see what you mean. In fact, all of a sudden, I see the two brains. Yes, and you'll see also in this work you'll see a couple with two shoe, two sets of shoes, and uh, and there's a little musical notes along the bottom, and on the bottom, it says flogging the subconscious mind. On the other side is a painting that says, and I'll just have to remember exactly what he there's said. A, there's a painting on the reverse side. On the reverse side. So all the paintings were painted on both sides, and they would be stapled into a they were stapled into a book. So, and the other side says, man could if he had milk in his tea for a million years. And it is a picture of a brain being milked like a cow. Oh, good lord! Yeah, fascinating artist. So you're already living with the work that you would want to? Well, I do like having it, and I, I, I like to put my own work alongside Jim's work, and I stand back and go, yeah, Jim and I, <laughs> we, we've got this. You're working on some plan. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm, I, have, you know, I have an enormous interest in, in artists that haven't 
necessarily followed the tried and true path. Judy, thank you very much for, for coming on The Good Oil. Much appreciated. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the episode. I trust you enjoyed hearing Judy talk about her work as much as I have. It being the first episode, I want to take the opportunity to thank a few people without whom The Good Oil would not exist. For technical and brand, Tor White. For design and aesthetic advice, Mike Robinson and Iris Wood. For theme tune and audio engineering, Devin Abrams. For legal counsel, Frith Tweedy. For her remarkable network and introductions, Trish Gribben. For her valuable insight, Maria Stolger. And all the gallerists that have been kind enough to introduce me to artists. I hope you'll join me for episode two and beyond. Thanks again for listening.